It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabaktani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. The story of, of Easter, um, it, it's got two events to it. They are destiny-altering events. But it's, it's one story, and uh, it's just got two unfolding halves. And so we're going to cover the one half today, and I'd like to encourage you to come on Sunday to hear the other half. And um, if you think of a story, any story, it's generally got a beginning and an end. It, it's kind of necessary for it to be a story. And generally, the beginning has a level of bitterness, um, which kind of sets the stage for an amazing end, which is sweet. You know, like that makes a really good story if, if it's not just a beginning and an end, but a, a beginning that's got some stuff in it and then an end where like someone comes through and saves the day. And so a beginning and an end is typically how we know stories, but the story of Easter actually has an end and then a beginning. It's like God, you know. <laughs> he, um, his ways are different to our ways. And when we think in our ways and the way of the world, what makes sense to us is a beginning and an end. But for him, it's an end and then a beginning. And this end has a bitterness to it. But the beginning to follow has an incredible sweetness. And um, so we are going to look at the end today. That's the emphasis for today. Good Friday. And there's three things that the cross brought to an end. It brought an end to duty. It brought an end to darkness. And it brought an end to division. So that's the framework for this morning. It was a bitter day, but it was also a beautiful day. It was a traumatic day, but it was also triumphant. So Good Friday is the day that we look at these three things coming to an end. And firstly, 
the end of duty, it's uh, in the text that was read by Gwenda, it says, come down from the cross and save yourself in verse 30. This is the mob speaking to Jesus as he's on the cross. Come down, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Do you see the divine irony in what they're saying? It's almost like they understood what was happening. It's like he's not saving himself because he's saving others. That's exactly why he didn't come down. He could have come down. He willingly stayed there. And, um, and so they're mocking him. And they're pushing the subject of save yourself. And I think the reason why they push this thing of save yourself is because subliminally and on a subconscious level, that's exactly what they were doing all their lives, trying to save themselves by their lives, by their godliness, by their righteous deeds. And so from a point of arrogance to say like, hey, look at me, I'm doing okay. How about you? Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And um, there is a deep subconscious, I think, in everyone where you'd have this posture of, like, I need to save myself. It's very much how we grow up in the world today. And I suppose you might be asking yourself the question, well, what am I saving myself from? Am I even in need of rescue Well, let me me put it to you this way. If you know that there's a difference between right and wrong, between good and evil, by knowing that there's a distinction between those two, you are actually acknowledging that there's a moral law. That there's a moral law that presides over us. It's a cosmic moral law that presides over the earth that we occupy. And if you're acknowledging that, well, then you must acknowledge that there is a moral lawgiver to whom you would one day have to give an account as to whether you lived by this law or not, whether you yourself were good or evil, whether you yourself were right or wrong. And the real question is, did we live by this law? Did we get it right? If you're wondering about the answer to that question, I want to highlight what the Bible has to say because the Bible's quite clear on how we're faring in this regard. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a standard this moral law of what's right and wrong, and it's a standard of perfection because God is perfect and He is holy, and our efforts to live up to this moral law will mean that we will never ever get to that point. We will always fall short of it. That's the Bible's answer to that question. And so we realize that this law is actually not in itself a solution. It's not that we're going to save ourselves by abiding by the law. The law is just a diagnostic tool. It's just there to show us that we're never going to get it right. It's, it's like an x-ray that shows up the fact that the arm is fractured. 
but it's not the thing that you wrap around your arm. The x-ray is not there to save your arm or to heal your arm. It's just to show that it's broken. And so the law of God is there to bring a distinction between right and wrong, good and evil, but it's also there to show us that we are falling short of this perfect standard, and for that reason, we are all in need of rescue. We're in need of rescue. We are in need of saving. But we cannot save ourselves because the debt is too big and we aren't able to make that payment. I think a lot of um, nominal Christianity or, or people that think in religious ways have a certain way of making sense of this journey and they view it in a way where they put themselves at the starting point, here I am on earth, and for the full duration of my life, I am hopefully making my way to heaven. I am moving in a direction which is not going to be hell and it's going to be heaven, and the basis of getting to heaven is that I'm going to do more good than bad. There's going to be more positive than negative. So I find the line of what is morally good in my eyes, or what I think is right, and I try to live above the line. And while I'm living above the line, I'm in a good place. If I'm below the line, well, then I'm in trouble, and, and maybe I should change my ways. And at the end of my life, maybe there's this grand assessment that's going to be made of my life above the line and my life below the line, and hopefully above the line is going to outweigh below the line. And at the end of my life, there would be this grand assessment of my good versus my bad, and my good is going to win. Just so that you know, that's not right. And that's not what the Bible says about the journey that we call life. What would make it even worse is if, like, at the point of my death, am I above the line or below the line? And if I happen to be caught at a bad time, well... Then what? So do you see that this is not a, a very encouraging picture? Because if you're above the line, well, you're struggling with a sense of self-righteousness. And, and, and we can read from Scripture what God has to say about self-righteousness and our righteous deeds and how he looks at it and views it. And if you're below the line, well, then you're suffering from despair. I mean, it's, it, uh, I'm below the line. That means if I come to the end of my life... I haven't done enough. And if you think above the line, well, how would you know that you have done enough? And so this picture is problematic, and it's not biblical. It's problematic because it's me-centered. And we need to live our lives that's in a way that it's not me-centered, but Jesus-centered. Because the, the Bible is not about you and me. It's about God. It's about his plan of redemption. It's about how he is redeemed in and through his son. So the Bible is written for you. It's not written about you. So we need to take ourselves out of this picture because when we put ourselves in the middle and it's all about me and all of how, how I'm going to save my life, how I'm going to rescue myself, how I'm going to keep myself above the line, let me tell you something. You're in trouble. You can't save yourself. You can't. You've fallen short. And so Jesus is the one that we need to look to. 
it's problematic because it's about my behavior as opposed to about God's activity. When we read the Bible, it's about God's activity. It's about how we've fallen short, but how he has brought about a solution to this. He has brought about a rescue in and through his son, Jesus. It's problematic because it's me moving towards heaven, but actually the story of the gospel is heaven moving towards us. That's what Jesus said when he came to earth. The kingdom of heaven is here. Like heaven has moved in our direction. It's not that we're moving in his direction. So if if we had to come to the end of our lives and had to stand before God and he had to ask us the question, why should I let you into heaven? Your first word can't be I. It has to be him. Do you understand the difference? It's like you're not going to stand there and say, well, I've done this. I've lived in a certain way. I've stayed above the line. No, you haven't. The answer is him. We're looking to him. There he is, Jesus. That's the reason why I can come in. It's not me. It can't be about I. If it is, we're all in trouble. It's problematic because it's God's assessment of how I've done on this earth versus God's assessment of the atoning work of Jesus. You see, so when I come to heaven, I want to say it's because of him and because of what he did. That's how I can stand here. Not because of my own doing. That's exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You see, the priests before Jesus, they would bring lambs every day. And they would sacrifice these lambs as a means of keeping the slate clean, atoning for the sins of the people. And it would be a matter of life given so that life can be retained. The life of the lamb was given so that the life of the people could be retained. The blood of the lamb was shed so that the lives of the people could be kept clean. And they would do it all the time. There is no record in Scripture of the priests ever sitting. They couldn't sit. They had to stand. Why? Because the work never came to an end. It was their daily duty. It was an ongoing duty. And if it wasn't for the story of Easter, if it wasn't for Good Friday, it would still be an ongoing duty. We, we would be bringing sacrifices for the sake of keeping our slate clean. We would be keep bringing offerings of morality and a good life to stay in God's good books. What a burden. What a duty. But Jesus said in Hebrews 10, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired speaking to God but a body you have prepared for me. You see, the the fact that Jesus was given a body, it's the start of this. No longer is duty 
going to be required of you. No longer is a work that is yours for the sake of atoning of sin going to be yours. I've prepared a body for my son. And he brought an end to duty. He brought an end to the work that is required of us to keep our slate clean and to keep us in a place of moral goodness. That work was ended at the cross. The cross marks the end of religious duty. It marks the end of relying on our own efforts. It marks the end of our good works. Good in inverted commas. And it's the moment where we get to rest in a finished work that has been done for us. It's the end of duty. Are you resting today? Are you resting in the cross? Or do you feel like there's something in you that is requiring some form of effort to keep God happy? There is nothing that we can do. It's all been done for us. It's the end of duty. Secondly, it's the end of darkness. It says in verse 33, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the, up until this point, Jesus has experienced something horrendous. Beyond what we could ever imagine. So, so he had gone through emotional trauma, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. The anguish of what was lying ahead. He, he went through relational trauma where he was betrayed by one of his closest. He was denied by one of his closest. He was deserted by all of his disciples. The offense that we pick up when, when people... <laughs> we got no idea what he went through. He was falsely accused. I see in our home, like when... Something gets said. It's like, who left this here? Not me. I didn't ask who didn't do it. I asked who did do it. But there, there's a defensiveness. There's a, they're like, it wasn't me. We don't like to be accused of things. Jesus is falsely accused. Blasphemy. And he is charged with death. He's beaten. And then he gets whipped beyond recognition. I, I, I read Isaiah 52 this week, flowing into Isaiah 53. And I've read it before, but it's like, it felt like I was reading it for the first time. Because it talks about him being disfigured and marred beyond human likeness. It was hard to recognize if he was human or not. Do you realize the whipping and the beating that he went through up until this point where he's on the cross? And then crucifixion, we know, is uh, 
such a cruel death that it was abolished. Seven-inch nails driven into his hands and into his feet. It's a bitter day. The dark day. But it's about to get darker. While his body is in shock and he's losing so much blood that it's putting his heart under trauma. And asphyxia starts to kick in where he's struggling to get oxygen into his lungs. And the slow process of suffocation is taking place. It says, darkness came over the land. Utter darkness. There is no more radically disorientating thing than utter darkness. I took a moment this week, one of the benefits of load shedding, I guess, to at the time of load shedding, to even try and escape the little bits of lights that we had going down the passage. I went to our room and I went into our closet and I closed the door. Utter darkness. Darkness where you can't, you can't see your hand in front of your face. I don't know if you've ever done that, if you've ever felt it, but it's quite disorientating. You don't know up from down. There's a horrible sense of what is going on here. So in this moment, Jesus is on the cross from nine in the morning, three hours later, this is like middle of the day, at noon, when the sun is meant to be shining, darkness comes over him. So, so we've unpacked like what it was up until that point, and we think, this can't get any worse. No, it's going to get worse. Darkness comes. Ernest Shackleton with his um, expedition to South Pole, and they had to survive a couple of months. And it was over that time where there was no sun. So from like mid-May to end July, sun doesn't come up. And so they're trying to survive. And they are faced with starvation. They are faced with freezing temperatures. But in the biographies that come out from that expedition, the thing that they struggled with the most was darkness. Couldn't see anything. And so for three hours, darkness comes over. And Jesus, in his place of deep vulnerability and incredible pain, experiences darkness. Darkness in the daytime was a recognized sign in Scripture for God's displeasure and his judgment. So in the Exodus story, the penultimate plague was darkness before the firstborn son was killed. And, and here it's happening again. Darkness comes down. Judgment's coming down. The wrath of God is coming down. And Jesus is experiencing some hectic things because he's got physical disorientation. He's got relational isolation. And he's got spiritual condemnation all happening at once in this place of extreme pain. And extreme desolation. Relational isolation. This is my God. My God. He can't see anything. He's in deep pain. And what he's basically saying is, why do you seem so far from helping me? 
You've forsaken me. You know, if one of you had to come to me afterwards and say, I really didn't like your preach, and um, I'm not coming back here, that would be tough. That would be hard to hear. But if my wife had to come to me and say, you're not going to see me here again. See, that, that would be different. That's a lot deeper because the love is deeper and the love is longer. So when Jesus, who eternally was with the Father, eternally loved by the Father and eternally loved the Father, the deepness and the longevity of that relationship, when he says, why have you forsaken me? You must understand the depth of his relational isolation that he went through in that moment. And the spiritual condemnation, well, the full weight of the sin of the world was put on his shoulders upon him. Because that's the penalty that needed to be paid, right? So he takes the fullness of that with all the shame and with all the guilt that comes with that. Plus then the wrath of God, the punishment that comes in this incredible moment of isolation and being abandoned by his father. The darkness of God's displeasure and the darkness of God's wrath came upon him over three hours as he was on that cross. And if we had asked the question, well, why did God forsake him? The answer is you and me. That's why. Forsook him so that we wouldn't be forsaken. Put the darkness on him so that we would not have the darkness on us. You see, outside of the cross, we were all in spiritual darkness. It's a darkness that we don't fully know, we don't fully get. But the Bible describes it quite specifically. Ephesians 3, Paul talks about the fact that we were children of wrath. So we lived in spiritual darkness. It's, it's going to get way more real at some point in time if you don't come to a point of faith and you don't put your faith in Jesus. It's, it's going to be a way more real darkness. But before coming to faith, there is darkness upon us. We are children of wrath. We are not the children of God. We're not born that way. We are by nature children of wrath. That darkness is ours. Until Jesus came and absorbed the darkness that was actually meant for us. You see, you hear the name Jesus and you're like, mm, I'm not really sure what to make of this man as someone who's not saved. But I want to say, if you don't know him, he didn't come to earth to bring judgment. He came to earth to bear judgment. He came to bear your judgment. He came to bear your darkness, your spiritual darkness for your sin and the penalty that goes with that sin. That's yours. He came and he absorbed it. The darkness that came from heaven, supernatural darkness that left him in a place of physical disorientation, relational isolation, and spiritual condemnation. He took that so that we don't have to. 
When you come to faith, when you look to Jesus as your Savior, you move on to the other side of that darkness. You live on the other side of judgment. Not on this side of it. And so what Jesus does on the cross is he doesn't just bring an end to duty. He brings an end to your darkness because he absorbed it. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him as your personal savior? Do you know him as the one that took your judgment? Do you know him as the one who absorbed your darkness so that you can live in God's glorious light? If you don't, today can be the day that your darkness comes to an end. It's good news. Then finally, the end of division. Verse 37 says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this is no flimsy veil. This is a curtain, a curtain that was so substantial as like a wall. And it was the very thing that kept division between the holiness of God and the sinful people. It's what brought about separation. There was only one day in the year, in those ancient times, where the holiest man from the holiest nation could go into the Holy of Holies, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was only one day. And he would have to be cleansed. He would have to have lived in a way that was deemed holy, even though there was still sin. But, but one moment in the year, one person could go behind the curtain where the holiness of God dwelt. And he would offer the blood of a sacrificed lamb as atonement for the people. And so that separation is a big theme in the Bible. The, the great divide between us and God, it's actually the biggest part of the Bible. If you look at the Bible as one story, it is an unfolding story where it starts with perfection in Genesis 1 and 2. Then separation from Genesis 2 all the way through to Malachi 4. Then in the Gospels, incarnation. And then in Acts and the New Testament letters, transformation. And in the book of Revelation, consummation. What a story. But you look at your Bible, the bulk of that is handling this section of separation. The divide between God, who is holy, and sinful man. And how he would bridge that with all these beautiful pictures of the sacrificial system and kings and prophets and priests. All pointing to this moment. All pointing to King Jesus, who is our great prophet and priest as well. Who would die on the cross, and in that moment of him breathing his last, and the finished work of atonement being done, where his blood has been shed, and his body has been torn in two, the curtain would be torn. And it says from top to bottom, just to make it quite sure who's doing the tearing. 
that separation has been brought to an end. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, let us draw near. Do you know what it means? It means what was impossible for man to do because of sin in man. To come into the presence of a holy God now is made possible. The curtain is torn because Jesus' body was broken for us. And in that act, God is saying, the way to me has been opened up once and for all. The barrier is gone. Jesus has dealt with the separation. The cross marks the end of division. End of duty. End of darkness. End of division. That's good news. No longer separated from God. No longer kept from a distance. But our sins being atoned for, which allows us to come into His presence and have fellowship with a very holy God who is perfect in every way. And the story ends where Mark immediately shows us the first person to enter that holy place after the crucifixion. Because it says in verse 39, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Who's the first person to confess the deity of Christ after the cross? A pagan Roman soldier. The one who is presiding over Jesus' crucifixion. He was a brutal, mocking murderer. But you see, he saw how Jesus died. Now, I don't know exactly what he saw. But even at a heart level, he saw how Jesus brought an end to duty. He saw how Jesus brought an end to darkness, how he absorbed the darkness of God's wrath. And he saw how the great divide between God and sinful man was torn into. And it says, when he saw how he died, it's like in that moment there was something of God's light that shone into the darkness of his heart. And his confession that flowed from there was, surely this is the Son of God. Pagan man. Never knew God before. With this incredible revelation because of what Jesus did on the cross. I want to ask, is that your confession today? Surely this man Jesus is the Son of God. Surely this man Jesus paid for my sin. Surely this man Jesus took my darkness took the work of finding God's pleasure upon himself and took this divide between me and God away so that I could come into his presence and I can know him and I could be rescued from my sin. He is not just king, he is Lord and he is my savior. 
What a confession. All through this incredible day, the end of Easter. <laughs> you see, you only come to the ends that Jesus went to when you come to the end of yourself. And you say, there's nothing that I can do, but I am in need of rescue. There's nothing that I can do to please God. There's nothing that I can do by my own merit. But I get to put my faith in the merit of another. So the cross is the end of the duty before us, the darkness upon us, and the division between us and God. It's done. Where all the priests could never sit, when Jesus was done with this work of atonement and he ascended to heaven, it says what? He sat at the right hand of the Father. It's a completed work. Done. Do you know this rest? Do you know this truth? Is it yours? And if it is, I trust that you are encouraged by the beauty of the cross. What it means for you. If it's not yours, today's an opportunity for you to look to Jesus in a way that you've never looked at him before. Where you acknowledge he is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is my Savior. 